The title of today's sermon is Feeding the Hungry, and it's taken from Matthew 14, verses 13 through 23. All right, would you uh, bow with me in prayer? Father, uh, we pause at this moment, we reflect on the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit and the fact that He indwells us and will illumine us. So we ask that uh, our teacher, the Spirit of God, will bring this text alive in our hearts and minds and apply it to our very lives that we might live successfully and in harmony with your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember the charitable supergroup formed in, the ni- in 1984 to speak to the issue of famine that was taking place in Ethiopia. It was called Feed the World. Their intention was to bring relief to starving Africans. This supergroup was spearheaded by British and Irish pop stars headlining such notables as Phil Collins, Bono, Criss Cross, Boy George, Simon LeBon, George Michael, Sting, David Bowie, Paul McCartney, and many others. The project was led by Irish do-gooder Bod Geldof of Live Aid fame. The monies raised primarily came through the release of the song, Do You Know It's Christmas?, Released in November of 1984, the song became the number one Christmas song of the 1980s. For a little bit of background, I'd like you to watch the following video, and please read the closed captioning as well. So can we have lights and sound for the video? Christmas time There's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it
catchy tune, don't you think? I guess the only time you get get fed is at Christmas time. The truth is, liberal do-gooders are not bad people, but they just have bad thinking. They believe the world's problems can be solved through the efforts of men. They assert if enough celebrities come together for a cause and say, say for a one-day recording session, the world can be changed forever. Unfortunately, the liberal church has also fallen into that same canard. These folks falsely believe that the church can change the world. They assert that if enough people get together to collect clothes, canned goods, or whatever, they can feed the homeless and change the world. Now, I fully understand what they are saying. And while it's not popular with some folks, maybe even you, the question is, is that biblical? As you know, there are all sorts of ministries and programs aimed at accomplishing the goal of eradicating human hunger from the world. And yet Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, states in the very book that we are studying, you will always, you will always, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Lord's Jesus' point is that man's hunger is because of sin and that it will always be a problem until he returns again. One of the main reasons for the erroneous belief is based upon the faulty interpretation of the text that we look at this morning. As you'll recall from the last time we were together in the book of Matthew, the Lord taught numerous parables before sharing their meaning in public, or excuse me, in private with his disciples. The hard teaching that Jesus gave was intended only for his disciples, not for mass consumption by the Israelites. Following these parables in chapter 13 and in chapter 14, Jesus once again demonstrates his power in his person by performing miracles, signs. These miracles or signs substantiate him as the aforementioned Messiah King. Now, at the end of chapter 13, you recall Jesus was rejected by his family, by his hometown of Nazareth, and by all of Israel as demonstrated by the religious elites who were the representatives of the people of Israel. Matthew 13 states that people took offense at him. Now, on the map behind me, we'll see that Jesus is in Nazareth. If I can get this light to work here. He's in Nazareth, Nazareth, and he makes his way to north of the Sea of Galilee. He walks in this direction through passes and and, uh, other ways, mountaintops, and he makes his way to his home port, hometown for his ministry in Capernaum. In our text this morning, we'll say that he goes to Bethsaida, which is to the northeast, uh, just to the south, excuse me, to the east, I should say, of uh, Capernaum is here, and this is Bethsaida, and that he will go to this portion of the lake on the east side to feed the 5,000. He will go by boat. As we read our text, we will see that Jesus and his entourage walked from Nazareth to Capernaum, a distance of about 120 miles, and upon arriving in Capernaum, they're a little bit tuckered, t- tired. 
So they get into a fishing boat, as I showed you on the map, and they make their way along the shoreline looking for a place to rest. Again, in chapter 13, we know that Jesus had just been informed before leaving for Capernaum that Antipas had beheaded his cousin, John the Baptizer, in prison. Obviously, the Lord was suffering. He was mourning the loss of his kin and the forerunner of his ministry. This was the precursor to a rise of a fierce opposition against Jesus as being the king of Israel. Now, as we examine this so-called feeding of the 5,000, we will find no Old Testament reference in any of the texts which I've given to you to peruse uh, by any of the gospel writers to explain the meaning of it more fully. However, the Jewish audience participating in this event, watching and listening to Jesus, would have instantly understood how the feeding of these people related to the previous events found in the Old Testament. They would have instantly understood the parallel that exists between the feeding of these Israelites in the desolate wilderness to that of those that God fed in the Exodus. They would have recalled how the Lord fed the chosen people on that occasion and several others in the Old Testament events that took place. The Jewish readers of Matthew would have certainly made that same connection in their minds as they listened or read Matthew's text. It's a shame that most modern-day church readers are ill-equipped to make that association today. This has led to a number of improper translations and interpretations, as I said, and applications of this event in the church today. At various sundry times in the past, it was God who miraculously fed his people. For example, you'll remember God gave the provision of manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Israel had wandered in the Exodus, in the wilderness of the Sinai and uh, wilderness places after God led them out of Egypt. And they were hungry and thirsty, and God gave them manna. And yet that manna lasted but one day. After that, on the next day, the manna would be spoiled and inedible. God provided Israel with physical food that had a limited shelf life. There, then there is another event recorded in Second Kings, uh, where the prophet Isaiah, uh, Elisha, I should say, has 200 men that he needs to make sure are fed. But he has only 20 small barley loaves in which to feed them. The attendant of Elisha comes to him, and Elisha says, give them the bread to eat. And the attendant replies back to Elisha, exclaiming, what? Set just 20 loaves before 200 men? He questions Elisha how 200 men can be satisfied by such a pittance of bread. Elisha informs him that God has revealed that each man will be satisfied and even there will be leftovers. Then there's the time that Elijah ran into the wilderness in order to escape the wrath of an evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah comes into contact with the widow whom he asks for bread, only to learn that she has none. 
All that is in the house that is left is a handful of flour, and she had intended on using it to make one last loaf of bread to feed her and her son before they die. Elijah instructs her to go make the bread and to bring it for his dinner. He assures her that the Lord will give her flour continuously and oil that will never be exhausted until the rains return. With those events in mind, every Israelite, upon hearing or seeing or experiencing the feeding of the 5,000, would have instantly understood and connected the provision of God for the Lord's people in the Old Testament to themselves. Let me point out that this miracle is is recorded by all four gospel writers. It is the only miracle outside of the resurrection to be recorded that way. Now, that's not to say that there's complete uniformity in each of these accounts. They have different focuses and different nuances to them. Matthew is, after all, writing, addressing fellow Jews who had expected the Messiah to come in their lifetimes. Clearly, the feeding of the 5,000 was intended by Matthew to explain that God was multiplying the service to his son through the disciples. This miracle was also, however, intended to be a sign to the nation of Israel, as we shall see. That Jesus is God, and just as the Father fed the multitudes in the Old Testament, providing manna, that Jesus is able to provide the provisions that people need in this life. However, his provisions are more than bread that lasts one day. He is the bread of life. He will explain this to his disciples in great detail, stating that the bread of life that came down to the Israelites from heaven and manna was only short-term, but the bread that he gives is eternal. So there are huge differences between the events of the past and the events that we find here. And to understand this event, we must place them within their proper Jewish context. Matthew is not in any way, shape, or form writing the future church, telling them that they have the power to feed a hungry world. No, that is a mischaracterization and misinterpretation of this text. He is saying to the Jews that are standing before him that the same God who provided for them in the past can now provide them something even greater in the future. So with that as our introduction... Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 14? We pick up in verse 13. If you need to use a pew Bible, you can find our text on page 973. We begin with the setting for this miracle. We find in verse 13 that when Jesus heard about John, that is his death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Again, looking at the map, you put that up for me. Is this thing working? Yes, here it is. He's in Capernaum. He gets into a boat. There's probably a wharf there, and the boat goes along the coast, and he can see the disciples, and he can see the people following him along as they look for a des- desolate place to get away. The crowds are coming from all of the villages and hamlets in the region, in the region, I should say. Um, Jesus' intention was to go find some place where he could be alone with his disciples for a number of reasons. 
First of all, he wanted to be alone so that he could grieve and mourn over the death of his cousin John. That's the first reason. He was surely seeking some time alone just to reflect on what was going on in his life and in his ministry. Jesus had had been deeply moved by John's death, not only because he lost a cousin, but because of the implications that it held for himself. So Jesus seeks a place to be alone, to rest, but the crowds are following. He can see them along the shoreline as they make their way toward the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus also, we learn from the uh, book of Mark, I've given you that text, you can read it for yourself. He also sought to get away with his disciples to find a place to teach his disciples many things. It's likely that the pressure of the ministry and his mission given to him by his father was starting to press in on him now. And with John's death, he was grieved, and he also understood the implications of what that meant for him in the future. And yet the crowd pressed in. Now let me point out to you that only Luke tells us that this took place in the region called Bethsaida. That is on the northeastern part of the lake. Interestingly, no other gospel writer identifies the exact place, only saying that they went to a lonely or a desolate place. Now, some have wrongly inferred that this was in a desert region. But that cannot be so. For we learn later on in the text that we read in Matthew that Jesus had the people sit down upon the grass to eat. So Jesus, as he and his disciples are traveling along the shoreline, they can watch the crowd following them. And verse 14 tells us that when they went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus is very tired from this 120-mile walk from uh, from Nazareth to Capernaum. That's why he took the boat in the first place. And yet when he sees the people, he feels compassion upon them. Listen to me now clearly and understand me. God has compassion for all people. He loves people of the world, for God so loved the world. But the greatest act of compassion ever shown by Jesus Christ was dying on the cross in mankind's place. Couple that with the fact that most people in the world reject him. We saw an illustration of this on Tuesday. If you watch the State of the Union address, certain partisans, our so-called legislators, didn't even have the willingness to stand when our president mentioned our God. They sat on their hands rather than glorifying God and clapping for the fact that God has blessed America. You see, the truth is, most of humankind hates the idea of a supreme being. They hate the fact that God has a will for their life and has principles that affect them and are supposed to be those principles that we live by. So, we make a huge mistake, I believe, when we focus on the idea that Jesus was compassionate as the motivation for his healing ministry. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is what a lot of people like to do. 
I'm not saying that Jesus isn't compassionate or that wasn't one of the motivations for what he did. But his motivation for healing these folks was not his compassion. You'll see why in just a moment. Jesus used miracles to confirm the message that he brought, that he was offering himself to be the Messiah King of Israel. Jesus healed these folks I believe, in response to demonic opposition that arose and confronted him. We will see this same pattern fleshed out right before his second coming during the Great Tribulation. You see, when Jesus heals people, he shows them who he is. It's his calling card. So we need to ask a couple of questions if we're really to understand the compassion of Christ. Why didn't Jesus heal all the people who were hurting in the world? When he doesn't do that, that makes him an uncompassionate individual, doesn't it? If I helped Joe but didn't help all of you, what kind of compassion would I have if all of you were hurting with the same thing? Jesus didn't heal these people because he was a compassionate God. He did it to show that he was God in the flesh. Why didn't Jesus just zap my knee and take away the pain so that I didn't need a knee replacement two weeks ago? The truth is, the miracles of Jesus weren't done because of his compassion. They were done for a very specific reason. If Jesus had done them, those miracles, because he was compassionate on people, then he would have to override the rebellion of mankind against God by choosing to sin. The sin of Adam has its consequences amongst humankind. It reverberates down to this day. We have sin, death, and hell because of Adam's sin. God cannot override that choice, those effects of Adam's sin. If he does, then the Bible would be flawed. So we see that our thinking about who Christ is and the things that he did must not be driven by false human emotions, but by biblical truth. The reason Jesus did miracles was to validate and prove himself to the Jewish people because, as you know, the Jews demanded a sign. Now, So after a very long day of teaching and preaching and healing, his disciples say to the Lord Jesus, Hey, get rid of these people. Send the multitudes away. We read of this in verse 15. We see the need of the people, as Matthew writes, When it was evening, the disciples came to him, that is Jesus, and said, The place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. It's getting late in the day. According to the Jewish clock, there are two specific markers for evening. There is an early evening and a late evening. The early evening begins at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and that's because it was in conjunction with the sacrifices that took place at the temple at that time. Everybody stopped and reflected. The later evening began at 3 p.m. or after sunset. So the disciples look up at the sun, look out at the crowd, and they can't help but notice that they're out in the boonies. There's nothing there on the east side of the lake. 
There's no towns to go to that are within a short distance. So it's a desolate place. There's no hamlet, no villages, no towns, no Winco, no Fred Meyer to go get food. There's absolutely no place to get food. It's an uninhabited region. But it's not a desert because it's situated right on the Lake of the Galilee. So the disciples are worried. They see this huge crowd of hungry people and they're wondering to themselves, will they get hostile? Matthew tells us in verse 16, But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You, you, you give them some, something to eat. Isn't that amazing? Jesus looks at his disciples straight in the eyes and he says to them, You feed them. Now, the Lord puts personal responsibility right on his disciples. You provide the people's needs. But they were afraid of the people. I know this is so because the Greek sentence pushes the plural you all the way to the very front of the sentence. You guys give them the food that they need. To say the least, his disciples were a bit stunned at this. These 12 men had appointed themselves as Jesus' board of directors. They fancied themselves as the head of the JCEA, is what I like to call it, the Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association. And as the board of directors, they had decided amongst themselves that Jesus needed to do what they said. Jesus, it's time to leave. Let's go. Let's hit the road before the people hit us. The disciples saw the magnitude of the problem. They were overwhelmed by the disproportionate resources that they had on hand, two fish and five loaves of bread. And in verse 17, we learn that they take up a free will offering. Isn't that the answer for a lot of churches? Let's take up a free will offering. We'll take care of this need ourselves. But they came up short. We read in verse 17, we have only five loaves and two fishes here. According to uh, John's account in chapter 6, you can find it there if you look at it later, Andrew, Peter's brother, had located one little boy who had his lunch with him. So the resources they had available, according to the disciples, was simply five loaves and two fishes. That's not enough to feed one kid, let alone 5,000 men. This boy's lunch was inadequate to provide the needs of the people. That's how I see what's going on in the church today. The church wants to scrape together one one little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and feed the rest of the world. You see, the church has sunk into the lowly state of becoming do-gooders. They think they've been appointed by God to do-goodism, hand-in-hand with the world, as we saw in the video behind us. We no longer, as a church, care about teaching people the truth. And in fact, the Bible in most churches has become irrelevant. It's not even in the pews in front of people. The church has become just like the disciples. They want to send the multitudes away. So instead of teaching biblical truth, the church is sending people off to psychiatrists and psychologists to get their help. Or off to doctors to get drugs to cover up the pain of their miserable little lives. The church sends the multitudes to the government to get welfare, rent, disability checks, and, of course, 
a lump of cheese. The church lacks any spiritual bread to offer the starving multitudes. Instead, what does it offer up? Folk tales, cute little stories, or 10-step programs to help the little people with their miserable little lives. You see, five loaves and two fishes in the hands of men is powerless. The church is offering the multitudes a band-aid, if you will, to cover the sin that has so entangled them. The church fails to realize the real solution because... They believe men are sufficient when they are totally insufficient. The answer is not in more church programs, bigger government, or human imagination. The only hope that mankind has is in the power and the provision of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is powerless because it no longer believes that Jesus Christ is the answer. And in verse 18, Jesus offers the provision for this specific need. He said to the disciples, what does he say? Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Jesus doesn't say, go to the local government, go get go to Antipas in his office and ask him. He doesn't advise them to start a church ministry to feed these people no matter how noble or well-meaning that might have been and their efforts might have been, Jesus says the answer isn't found in human beings. Bring them to me. Bring them to me, says Jesus. You see, men, even saved men, just don't get it. It's not what you have that counts with him, but actually what you don't have. The task of discipleship is helping meet the needs of people by bringing them to Jesus. Clearly, the answer to the world's problems are to bring people to Christ. Jesus is the ultimate provider of all that man needs. Now, you can feed a man a meal or even a week, but only Jesus Christ can give eternal life. In order to demonstrate this truth to the twelve, Jesus uses a metaphor. He uses physical food to represent spiritual food. We see this in verse 19 when Jesus ordered the people to sit down on the grass. Okay, He took five loaves and two fishes and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Let's look at this very closely. First of all, note that Jesus did not feed the 5,000. It was the disciples who fed the 5,000. Also, once again, he's not in a desert, but he's on a grassy knoll somewhere along the eastern side of the lake. And in Luke, we learn that this was done by a very orderly fashion. The disciples had them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. John tells us that this happened right before the Passover celebration. So this occurred sometime in March or April. In other words, one year before Jesus would go to the cross and die for people to eat. What are are they fed? What do the folks eat? The typical Middle Eastern meal. Here we find it's bread and fish. Now some people, and I think they're right, Uh, believe that this foreshadows what we will do in just a little while, celebrate the Lord's table. That was for the immediate future. But it also foreshadowed something that would take place at the beginning of the millennium. That is, 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as we look at this verse, we must focus on four verbs used by every one of the writers in describing this event. All four use them. Those verbs are, he took, he gave, he blessed, and he broke. All four are used to describe those other two events, the Lord's table and the future marriage supper of the Lamb. He took, he gave, he blessed, and he broke. It's noteworthy that this multiplication of the bread and fish is the exact same temptation that Jesus faced from the devil when he was in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, the devil takes the very hungry Jesus who hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he says to him, you see that rock there? That round one that looks like a loaf of bread? If you're really hungry, feed yourself. Turn it into bread. Jesus didn't fall for that temptation to sin. Aimed at him by the evil, wanting he doesn't fall for it now. But somehow we're supposed to believe that Jesus succumbed by the liberal church to this, um, this temptation. There's no way. Instead, the Lord takes the meager offering of his disciples and looking to heaven, his Father multiplies it again and again. This speaks of the provision of God for his people, but it's distributed, the people are fed by the the disciples. The disciples receive the provision of God and then they give it to others. As you might know, eating... In the Bible, always represents fellowship, friendship, and unity. So as the multitudes of Jews gather around one another, they are one large family. They have come together to sit and to sup with one another. And the provision is provided by who? The Son of God. You and I will in just a few minutes sit and sup together a provision provided by the Son of God. It's not that little rocky thing called, we call bread, Ugh. nor the grape juice or whatever it is we drink. That's not what it's about, is it? It's about the spiritual provision that Christ has made for us, that he died for us, that he suffered for us, that he took our place on the cross of Calvary, giving to us freely eternal life. Now, what I'd like you to see in verse 20, something that's really awesome. The Lord is able fully to meet the needs of people. In fact, the text tells us they all ate and were satisfied. What an awesome statement on the sufficiency of our Savior. They all ate and they were satisfied. It doesn't say some ate. It says all ate. It doesn't say some people enjoyed the lunch of the little boy and others went hungry. No, the Greek word that's used here, satisfied, is korizoma. It means to be fed, to be satisfied, to be full, to be filled. We receive the gracious provision of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives to us fully, abundantly. In fact, it's so abundant that there are 12 baskets that are left over and collected. Do you remember the manna in the wilderness? Exodus 16 tells us that when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a flake-like thing. What is that? That's what manna means. A fine frost on on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they asked that question. What is it? 
for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons in your tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much more and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and when he had little gathered it, he had no lack. Every man gathers as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave anything of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. Moses was angry with them. They gathered it, and by morning by morning, every man had as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Moses states that the people were fed by God every day with manna that came down from heaven. But there were no leftovers. There were no leftovers. What would Thanksgiving be like without leftovers? The physical food that God gave the children of Israel under the law was good for one day. Here we learn that the disciples were given enough to satisfy each and every man that's gathered there, but a superabundance was provided for them. We read they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, and there were 12 full baskets. Now, what that meaning 12 uh, has has been disputed. Some have suggested that it points to the 12 tribes of Israel. As we know, the number 12 is a common number in the Bible. But Matthew does not, nor any of the other gospel writers, explain its meaning. So we must be very cautious not to spiritualize or allegorize the meaning of 12 in this text. That said, 12 is used often of the tribes of Israel. And Matthew is speaking to Jews under the law, part of Israel. I think the focus, however, in my belief, is more on the leftovers than the number. The 12 probably corresponds to each of the disciples. There was enough left over for each and every one of them. God was able to fulfill their needs, give them the leftovers, and they could even share that with others. This is in contrast, again, to what the Old Testament teaches about the physical needs of the nation of Israel being met by the miraculous provision of manna coming down from heaven. Here there's a subtle contrast and, um, of that event as well as a similarities to it, but these are not explained nor given in the text. However, no longer is it physical food that God provides as he did through the Exodus, But what God provides now through Jesus Christ is spiritual food. And that spiritual food is delivered through the hands of his servants. This is, in my opinion, a foretaste of the coming Lord's table and the messianic banquet in the millennial kingdom. It is then and only then and there that uh, believers will be fully satisfied. So, One thing that's remarkable about this is that the provision was given to the 12 disciples. All 12. Even Judas, who was a devil. The word that's used for basket in this text is kofani. And that was a descriptive word of a small carrier that would be laid over the arm of an individual, much like a satchel, and carried. So they collected these fragments, put them in the satchel, and they carried them with them. As you might have guessed, 
liberals who do not believe in the inspiration of the scriptures have some very weird and unhelpful suggestions as to the meaning of this text. Some suggest that it is actually uh, every person gave up a small crumb that they brought with them or a fragment and that somehow they magically came together and was enough to feed everybody. Another suggests that the boy's offering of his lunch to Jesus convicted the crowd, I should say, so much that they were hiding their lunches, that they took them out, that they had previously concealed and shared them with everyone. Oh, brother, what lengths will they go to to undermine the scriptures, huh? All of that is extraneous to the text and not recorded by any of the writers. So, even if all 5,000 people donated a small crumb of bread, it would never have been enough to feed the number of people that are actually at this event, as we shall see in just a moment. Why do liberals reject this as a miracle? Because they cannot believe that God can do such things as make something out of nothing. This was done not for the compassion upon people, but to substantiate Jesus' divine person and as a sign to the nation of Israel. And if the liberals are right, and this was just a small amount of bread given to each person, or uh, the boy's lunch miraculously feeding the people for one meal, then why did the people come back to Jesus the next day if they really didn't believe he was able to make this provision for them? So, the sheer magnitude of what Jesus provided was overwhelming and disproportionate to the actual human need that was present. The lesson of this seems to me to be that the disciples were to function as mediators between Christ and those who had needs. They were given provision to supply the needs of others. They, in and of themselves, were totally insufficient to meet the need. It was only through the divine provision of God that that sufficiency could be met. Now, beginning in verse 21, we have the report and the conclusion about this event. Matthew writes that there were about 5,000 men, right? The feeding of the 5,000 is what it's called, right? Who ate, notice, it says, besides women and children. Isn't that an interesting statement? As you know, in ancient times, and I'm sorry about this, ladies and kids, Women and children had no standing in society. They didn't literally count. So when a count was taken, it was only of those men who had reached bar mitzvah. 5,000 were counted. So if we extrapolate from that number of men, we can come up with a figure that's more like, uh, out of those 5,000 possible men there, there was probably 15 to 20,000 people that were present and ate. What an amazing provision given by God to these people. Let me underscore once again, this is not about the compassion of Jesus, it's about proving and validating his person. There is a free lunch with Jesus, yes, but the purpose of Jesus was not to relieve the hunger of these people for one meal. His purpose was to relieve their spiritual hunger for eternity. This was a sign, this was a sign for Israel. The Jews require a sign, and here he gives them what they ask for. And yet, they really don't believe. Why do I say that? Even though the Lord validates, proves himself, 
to be who he said he was, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messiah King, what do they do? We learn in John chapter 6, the same text in which the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded, verse 66, that many of those who followed him turned away and left him. Now, in verse 22, we read that immediately after he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. He feeds the people. Then he tells his disciples, get into the boat, go back to Capernaum, and they leave. And then he tells the crowds to go away. And in verse 23, after he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus doesn't get away from the people by ascending to a uh, high place. He asks them to leave so that he can be alone and worship his Father and draw near to him. Now, Matthew does not mention what is recorded in John, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. There we read that when the people saw the sign, if you have a highlighter, a pen, circle that, when the people saw the sign... The miracle, it was a sign to the Jews. They understood what it was, which Jesus had performed. They said, who is this? This is the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains to be alone. He sent them away because they wanted to force him to be their king. Because they saw him nothing more than as a man. A prophet of God, gifted, but not who he proved himself to be. They envisioned him as a Moses character, an Elijah that would come by force and lead the Jews to conquer the Romans and get back to living life as they fantasized it to be. So, by their reasoning, the Jewish multitude had a flawed theological view of this miracle. All they saw Jesus was as a man that could take care of their physical needs. Feed them, get rid of their enemies. Doesn't matter how many miracles he did. He healed the sick. He multiplied the food. He cast out demons. He even raised from the dead. And all they cared about was defeating their enemy Rome. This was not the way that God wanted his kingdom to come. So they didn't believe in him. They believed in a full stomach. In fact, many in this crowd, it is assumed, will be in Jerusalem a year later on that day, shouting, instead of make him king, crucify him, crucify him. Looking back to John 6.14, I just want to rightly underscore once again that this event was understood by the Jewish people as being a sign. And yet Israel continued to reject Jesus as the Christ. He's just a prophet, a man. For they intentionally or unintentionally misunderstood the meaning of the signs that Jesus did and its implication for the nation of Israel, which is having its ramifications down to this very day for the nation of ethnic Israel. So what does the feeding of the 5,000 people mean to you and me? It's not about Jesus' ability to multiply the bread and the fish. That's a physical miracle. What this is about is more pointed towards the disciples then and now. 
They learned, and so should we, that Jesus is powerful enough to provide the needs of people through us. Not physical needs, but spiritual needs. They needed to stop, first of all, looking at themselves or around them for such provision. They needed to look to Jesus. Stop counting the canned goods, the coats collected, or the box goods, or the money collected and and donated. Instead of taking what food supply they had in their limited treasury, what they needed to do was to look to Jesus Christ to provide those needs. You see, when they got it, when they understood it, they, they knew that they were totally insufficient, and the only answer was Christ. Bring them to me. As the board of directors, their advice was, send the people away. Send them away. Like many in the church today. They look at an issue, and they never see it as the right place and time for God to work. They look at it as man's time to work. Jesus watched his frustrated disciples trying to deal with this problem using human thinking and human reasoning and human provision. John, once again, tells us this was Jesus' point of view. He himself knew what he intended to do. Jesus was designing a teaching situation for his disciples to learn that he is the provider of life, and by extension, he is teaching us the same thing today. So, don't miss the point. Jesus is proving himself, validating himself to be God and Messiah. Just like the God of the forefathers who experienced their physical needs being met by by God in the wilderness, now in and through his servants, the Lord is able to meet the spiritual needs of his people. That's why he gave teachers and elders to the church. Now there are all kinds of skeptics out there who do not believe the Bible. They try to explain the Bible as I have since previously mentioned, by offering up silly and nonsensical answers. Liberals state that people were ashamed that the little boy boy was the only only one to give his lunch to Jesus. So as I said, they took out their hidden food and shared their lunches with one another. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Human compassion. It's just not true. Jesus said, to meet the needs of people, you need to bring them to me. The meager supply and bread of fish would run out really quick. But Jesus alone can provide an overflowing abundance for our lives. From this point forward in the book of Matthew, the ministry now is directed almost totally at the 12 disciples. Jesus' goal was to instruct them, not only about the immediate future, the fact that he would be leaving them, but that in the time to come, they would pick up the mantle of ministry and minister in his place. This event is a lesson about service for the disciples to the God who can provide, rather than a picture of man feeding the world or taking care of human needs. May we never be clouded in our understanding of Scripture. May we understand it clearly. This is also a wonderful illustration of free grace. What did these people do to deserve a lunch? Nothing. 
Jesus didn't ask them to confess of their sin or to repent of their sin or do good works. He simply said, stick out your hand and my disciple is going to put a free gift in it. The free gift of food. Today, we offered a sick, depraved, decadent world a free gift of eternal life in Christ alone. Notice, it's not the church that can change the world. It's only Jesus Christ. Bring them to me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. Help us to understand it rightly. Help us to apply it correctly to our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust in your provision and not in men's. Help us, Lord, to live in harmony with your principles for life. Help us to believe the Bible and rightly apply it. Help us, Lord, to leave this place and take the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world. Help us, Father, to do so because you love the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.